Welcome to the Untold Tales Audio Anthologies. Written by Dr. Jeffrey A. Robinson and narrated by Melissa Del Toro Schaffner. Mistaken Identity Mac woke up in pain. His head throbbed rhythmically, as if someone were tapping his skull. Squinting one eye open, he squeezed it tightly shut again, nearly blinded by the bright lights that surrounded him. Raising his right hand to his head, he found it covered in cloth, bandages of some sort. They also covered his nose and his right eye. He heard voices nearby and struggled to sit up as he tentatively peeked out of his left eye to look around. A woman's voice sounded loudly. Dr. James, said the voice. Don't leave yet. I think your patient is waking up. Turning his head toward the voice, Mac was able to make out the shape of a nurse in blue scrubs. Approaching him from further away was an older man with silver hair and glasses. Ah, said the doctor. You're finally awake. I was beginning to worry. Leaning closer to examine him more, he asked. How do you feel? I feel like I was hit by a truck, replied Mac. Chuckling, the doctor said, (laughs) Actually, you were. An 18-wheeler, in fact. Though, to be more precise, the truck hit a bus in a busy downtown intersection, and two of them careened into traffic, demolishing at least six other vehicles. Yours was one of them. I don't remember anything like that. (laughs) That's not surprising. After head trauma like you received... It's not uncommon to lose a few minutes or even a few hours of memory. Tell me, do you remember your name? Mac paused. Of course, I remember my name, he thought. But I'm not going to tell you what it is. Not with warrants out for my arrest. No, he replied, raising both his hands to his head in an exaggerated gesture of pain and confusion. Again, that's not surprising. I'm afraid you've received a rather nasty concussion. You need to rest for a couple more days, though it's been almost two days that you've been unconscious. If you don't mind, however, I'd like to remove some of your bandages to get a look at your right eye. It was swollen completely shut, and I want to check if your vision has been impaired. Mac nodded softly and immediately regretted even that tiny motion as the pain in his head returned. The doctor carefully unwrapped the gauze covering his eye. Mac explored the remaining bandages and found that they covered his head down to the tops of his ears. Pulling out a small flashlight, the doctor pried open his eyelid and shined a light into his eye. Can you see anything out of it? Asked the old physician. Pushing the painfully blinding light away from him, Mac replied, Shit, yeah. Blinking, he added, I can see fine. Things are a bit blurry, but that light really hurt. Good, good, said Dr. James. I, uh, I don't mean good that it's hurt. I mean that there's no apparent damage to the eye. Stepping back, the only thing bothering me now is your memory loss and that you don't remember who you are. Tell me, does the name Chris Bennett sound familiar to you? Mac shook his head very gently. Well, that's what your ID says. Mac thought to himself, I never carry my real ID. 
I only carry fake ones, but Bennett isn't one of them. Are you sure it's me? He asked. Could you have me mixed up with someone else? That's possible, but unlikely. We're pretty sure it's you. Like a few of the other victims that you were brought in with after the accident, your clothes were cut off you because of material that leaked out of the tanker. As a result, a number of the injured were mixed up. We haven't matched up all the IDs with all the victims yet. Some of them were burned pretty badly when a spark set off fuel that had spilled in the street. Several of the bodies still haven't been identified. We're doing DNA matches now to identify them. It was rather chaotic when everyone arrived. You're quite lucky. You're pretty beat up, but at least you're alive. There are more than a dozen others who weren't so fortunate. Mac quietly talked to himself. Hmm, maybe I can play up the amnesia thing and take advantage of this mix-up in identity. You were listed as a John Doe until this morning when we matched you up to one of the remaining IDs that we had from the victims. Reaching under the bed, Dr. James pulled out a clear plastic bag and dug through it, retrieving a wallet. Taking out the driver's license, he handed it to Mac and said, Here, look at this. See if this jogs a memory. Mac took the laminated card and examined it. It was clearly not him. This guy is about my height and weight, he thought. But he's at least ten years older than me. His hair is almost completely white. His nose is entirely different, and his ears stick out. Yeah, said Mac, pretending to recognize the face. His face seems familiar. Say, he added, do you have a mirror? Sure, said the doctor, gesturing for the nurse to bring one over. Returning shortly, she handed the small mirror to Mac, who studied his reflection. His face was covered with bruises, some deep purple and others fading to green and yellow. His right eye was still swollen, and a little more than a slit between the eyelids allowed him to see. His upper lip was swollen, and metal splint covered his nose. Even my own mother wouldn't recognize me, he thought. Now that face, he said jovially, while gesturing at the mirror, is like nothing I can ever recall. The doctor and nurse shared his mirth as they removed the mirror. That's understandable, said the doctor. You almost made it all the way through the windshield. Your car was totaled, but they managed to pull you out of the car before it went up in flames. That's another reason it was difficult to identify you. The car's registration and insurance info were destroyed. Well then, I guess that settled then, said Mac. I guess you should call me Chris. That's excellent, Mr. Bennett. Say, how long will I have to stay here? He asked. Not long, said the doctor. I have to notify the police downstairs that you've regained consciousness. They set up a temporary office here so they could interview all the victims and get statements. I also promised to notify your wife when I called her this morning to confirm that you were one of the surviving accident victims. She said she could arrive within an hour of getting my call. Personally, I'd like to keep you here for observation for at least another day. But to be honest, we're still short of space following the accident, and I'm inclined to discharge you to your wife as soon as she arrives. Mac nodded softly and managed to make a small grin appear on his face. But he thought to himself, Shit, so much for taking advantage of the mistaken identity. I can't take the chance of meeting with the cops or the wife. 
It'd be apparent immediately that I'm not this Chris Bennett guy. I've got to get out of here. Well, then, he said. I'd like to grab a nap until everyone shows up. I'm still pretty weak. Quite understandable, said the doctor. I'll go make those calls and come back later, when your wife arrives. Mac closed his eyes and turned, as if going to sleep on his side. The nurse and doctor left, and Mac counted to 120 before sitting up, throwing off his bedsheets and hopping out of bed. He had to steady himself for a moment as the room slowly spun, but he stood for a few seconds as he planned his escape. Close, he thought. I need clothes. Reaching under his bed, he retrieved the plastic bag containing Chris Bennett's personal belongings. There was nothing except the wallet, a watch, not his, a wedding band, and a bottle of pills with Chris Bennett's name on it. The label said it was to prevent migraines. He threw the bottle away, but kept everything else. Taking the wallet, he moved to the bed of the other patient in his room. The man was sleeping, unconscious, in a coma or something, but he didn't even stir as Mac rifled his possessions. Fortunately, the other guy had clothing. Dressing quickly, Mac found the trousers an inch or two too short and the waist too large. The shirt was also too big and looked baggy once it was on. Still, it was better than a hospital gown. Stuffing the shirt in his pants and tightening the belt as snugly as it would go, he pulled out a dark blue jacket that thankfully had a hood. Putting it on, he turned and looked at himself in a wall mirror. The baggy pants and shirt made him appear really old, so he hunched over a bit to exaggerate the look. The hood covered the bandages on his head, and when he removed the nose splint, he looked like he was an old codger who'd been mugged. No one would recognize him. Glancing out of the door, he found the corridor empty, so he just casually sauntered out of his room and down the hall to the elevators. No one even glanced at him. Finally arriving in the parking lot, he looked around and thought, now I need some transportation. Nonchalantly strolling to a different hospital entrance, he loitered around the emergency room. After only a few minutes, a car drove up and as a woman hopped out, hurrying to the passenger door, she called out loudly for help and an orderly with a gurney hurried out and helped the passenger, an older man, onto the cart. The wife followed for a few steps as Max slipped into the driver's seat put the still-running car into gear, and accelerated away. In the rearview mirror, he saw the woman and the orderly stand motionless in shock as he sped into the late afternoon rush-hour traffic. Merging into the high-speed lane, he turned onto the Chicago Expressway and disappeared into the dense traffic. Now that I have wheels, I need a place to go, he thought. I can't go home, and I don't even have money to pay for a hotel. Benny Donatello and his people are pissed at me. They've cut me loose, so... They aren't going to be of any help. Sorting through a list of possible places to hide, he came up with an idea. I've got it. I'll go to Artie's. I haven't been there in quite a while, but Artie will put me up for a couple of days. Exiting the freeway, he turned onto side streets and headed to the near west side. The sun was still setting when he pulled up to Artie's bar and grill, but he found that Artie's shop was gone. In its place was an eatery called Romero's Pizza. What the hell? thought Mac. Parking on the street a half a block away, he slowly walked to the bar, hunched over to hide his face and to look like an old man. Mac carefully entered the pizza parlor and found the place essentially unchanged. 
the familiar bar was still where he expected it to be, though the menu where the grill used to be now listed different pizza options. Casually approaching the bar, he waved the barkeep, a young kid in his early 20s, and ordered a beer. Looking around, he noted that many of Artie's old photos were still on the walls. As the bartender brought the beer in a large, heavy mug, Mac asked, Hey, what happened here? I thought this was Artie's bar and grill. Oh, said the kid. It used to be, but Artie had some financial problems a couple months back and had to sell the place. It has a new owner, but Artie still works here as the night manager. Wow, he thought. I haven't been here more than six months. You'd think I would have heard about Artie going under. Is he here now, or should I come back later? No, he's here now, said the young man. He's in the back. You want me to go get him? If you would, thanks. Tell him that Mac is here to see him. The youth wiped his hands on a towel and turned to go. Hey, wait one second, called out Mac. Could you tell me the date? I can't remember the date of the month. It's the 23rd, said the kid. Tuesday, April 23rd. Then the kid disappeared through the doors behind the bar. April 23rd, thought Mac. Shit! Last thing I recall is meeting with Boss Donatello and his captains at their monthly gathering. January 15th. What the hell? I haven't lost three days. I've lost three months. After taking a long draft from his cold beer and setting his mug back down on the counter, he wiped the foam off his mouth and thought, maybe there's more to this amnesia thing after all. Mac wasn't one of the senior leaders in Ben Donatello's organization. He always attended the meetings, though, because he was Benny's chief enforcer. While there was a rigid hierarchy of people under Donatello, from capos, lieutenants, and soldiers, all made men, down to associates and crew members, Mac wasn't any part of it. He reported directly to the boss, serving as his personal bodyguard and hatchet man. Everyone in the organization hated Mac. Not only did he get special treatment by Benny, but Mac did work that no one liked. Mac periodically did wet work for Benny, but he only took down people within the organization, snitches, embezzlers, cheats, and liars. Mac was the mob equivalent of internal affairs in police departments. He cleaned out and punished people who broke the Don's rules. The meeting in January, however, hadn't gone well. Apparently, there was CCTV footage of Mac offing an underling named Morty, and Boss Donatello was not pleased. No, he wasn't pleased at all. In fact, he had dismissed Mac, saying he would have to think about the situation. Picking up his beer, Mac walked over to the piano on the other side of the room. Taking another long drink from his mug, he set it down on top of the piano next to several other empty mugs. As he waited, he casually tapped out a tune on the keyboard. Then he stopped and his eyes widened. Raising his hand to his face, he stared at his fingers and thought, What the hell? I've never played the piano. With a loud crash, the doors behind the bar flew open and out stepped Artie. Mac! shouted Artie. He looked right at Mac and then scanned the rest of the room. Turning back to the kid, Artie hollered, Jimmy, what gives? You told me that someone named Mac was here. Mac stood up from his stool. I'm over here, Artie, he said loudly, throwing back his hood 
and standing upright. Artie's jaw dropped, and he stared at Mac's mangled face and the bandages on his head. Yeah, I know, said Mac. You're probably having difficulty recognizing me. I was in an accident. You're supposed to be dead, said Artie. Mac shrugged and grinned, gesturing with his hands as if to say, here I am. Well, fortunately, the stories of my demise have been greatly exaggerated. I'm a little damaged, but I'm alive. Artie's face grew dark. You've got a lot of balls showing up here, he said, especially after everything you've done. This time it was Mac who frowned. Huh? What do you mean? I mean this, shouted Artie, as he reached down below the counter behind the bar and pulled out a short-barreled 38 caliber pistol. This is what I mean, you dirty weasel! Artie fired three rounds in rapid succession, but missed by a wide margin, as Mac dove behind the piano, knocking all the glassware onto the floor. Mac waited as Artie emptied the pistol and then listened for a satisfying click of the gun's hammer, hitting empty chambers of the revolver. Then, Mac quickly stood up and threw a heavy beer mug at Artie, who deftly ducked behind the bar. Pausing for only a second, Artie stood back up, but his hand cleared the top of the bar just in time to have a second heavy glass mug hit him solidly in the face. Artie went down as if he'd been hit by a concrete cinder block. Mac stood and walked over to the motionless body. He reached down and started to take the pistol, but realized that it wouldn't do him any good without ammunition, and he didn't have time to search for any. Glancing at the young bartender, who stood frozen in shock and fear, Mac said, He'll be okay. I think his nose is broken, and he'll hurt like hell when he comes to, but there shouldn't be any permanent damage. Tell him that I'm sorry things didn't work out for him. Mac then walked over to the cash register behind that bar and took out all the money there. He didn't stop to count it, but estimated that he had more than 220s alone. He also took a roll of quarters, figuring they might come in handy if he got into a confrontation involving fisticuffs. As he headed to the door, Mac shouted to the bartender, Oh, don't call the police or I'll have to come back and deal with you too. Without looking back, Mac returned to his car and headed out into the night. Mac needed another plan. Okay, time to inventory, he thought. I've got more than $200 cash, Chris Bennett's ID, and his credit cards, but using them will alert the police who are probably looking for him. Still, maybe I can go to his place and lay low for a while. I should at least check it out. Driving carefully to avoid any awkward traffic stops, Mac headed to the address on Chris Bennett's driver's license out in a Chicago suburb named Summit. Parking more than two blocks away, Mac assumed the slow, stooped gait of an old man. He studied his surroundings, noting neighbors and potential witnesses, and finally reaching Chris Bennett's home. The lights were on, and there were two cars in the driveway. He started to approach. His plan was to peek in windows to determine how many people might be at home. But before he reached the edge of the yard, the front door opened and two uniformed police officers stepped out. A woman stood in the doorway, sobbing inconsolably. As the police officers tried to leave, Mac crossed the street and turned to head back to his car. They probably just told her that the DNA shows her husband died horribly in the truck fire, he thought. Maybe they'll stop looking for me now. 
Reaching his car, he started to open the door when a voice behind him softly spoke. Ah, <laughs> there you are. I was told you might come here. Now, moving very slowly and keeping your hands open and outstretched, slowly turn around. I don't want to hurt you. Mac did as he had been instructed and slowly turned to find himself facing a stranger who held a gun aimed steadily at his chest. The well-muscled man wore dark civilian clothing and was about Mac's height. Mac figured he was an ex-military and a professional. He figured the guy was either a plainclothes cop or a fed, or maybe even an off-duty cop working neighborhood security. Very good, said the stranger. Now, are you armed? Do you have any weapons? Mac shrugged a little and pointed down at the left front pocket of his jacket. Okay, then, said the man. Now, what I want you to do is to very, very slowly, using your left hand, take out whatever is in that pocket and using only two fingers, show it to me. Mac complied and carefully reached into his jacket, slowly pulling out the roll of quarters that he had lifted from Artie's place less than an hour before. The man almost laughed. <laughs> That's it, he said. That's your only weapon? Mac silently nodded. Well, drop it to the ground and turn back around, facing the car with your hands around your back. Mac smiled and lowered the coins, as if he were going to drop them. Then he flicked his hand upwards, throwing the roll of quarters high into the air. Instinctively, the man's eyes rose and followed the coins. It only took a fraction of a second, but in that time, Mac moved sideways, out of line of the stranger's gun, and simultaneously hit the man on the chin with the heel of his right hand, with blinding speed. The man never even had time to blink. Mac heard the satisfying click as the man's jaw dislocated. The shock and pain of that punch would have dropped most men to their knees right then, but the man merely reeled backwards for a second. While he tried to raise one hand to his face and turn the gun back toward his target, Mac simply batted the gun aside. Grabbing the man's hair, Mac pulled his head down as his knee rose to meet the man's face. There was another satisfying crunch, and the man collapsed to the ground, out cold. Mac was impressed. The stranger hadn't dropped his gun or made a sound. Rolling him onto his back, Mac studied the man's face, but he didn't look familiar. He did look like he would need some extensive dental work, however. Taking the man's gun, Mac found that it was a military 45 caliber with a full clip of ammunition. Sticking it in his belt, he left the man in the middle of the street and climbed into his car. Without calling attention to himself, he drove off into the dark. Abandoning his car a couple miles down the road at one of the few remaining Amtrak stations that remained in the Chicago area, Mac hoped that the police would think he bought a train ticket west. Then, he walked another two miles on foot in the dark, finally stopping at one of the cheapest motels he'd ever had the misfortune to visit. Paying in cash, he signed in using a fake name and took a room. But before he left, he gave the clerk $100 and told him to order a meat pizza and a six-pack of beer to be delivered to his room. Mac also said, keep the change. The clerk's eyes grew wide and he enthusiastically replied, yes, sir, yes, sir. Mac grinned, thinking, that tip's probably more than he earns on his entire shift. Heading to his room, 
Mac immediately went to the bathroom. Drinking from the bathroom tap, he relieved himself and then proceeded to wash his face. He was still unrecognizable, but the swelling in his eye and lip had lessened. Poking at his injuries, he wondered whether makeup could cover his bruises. While he still wouldn't look normal, it might help disguise him. As it was, his mashed-up face was far too easy to identify, even from a distance. Before he could clean up any further, however, there was a rap on the door. Taking the 45, he carefully opened the door, only to find that the pizza had arrived. Quickly tucking the gun in the waistband of his pants, he unchained the door thinking, that was fast. Then he realized that he'd spent more time studying his injuries than he'd intended. He ate the pizza ravenously and quickly finished off the beers as well. Then he laid back for just a moment, and without turning off the lights or undressing, he fell asleep. His sleep, however, was troubled by nightmares. In his dreams, he spent all his time running, but he couldn't remember from whom. He had shootouts with cops and narrowly escaped from doctors and nurses who chased him. The strangest thing of all was that everyone in his dreams had the same face— that of Chris Bennett. Mac woke in a sweat and realized that it was light outside. Checking the time on the bedside radio clock, he found it was after 10 in the morning. Fortunately, he'd come up with another plan in his dreams. It's time to move on, he thought to himself. I don't know what's going on, but for now I just need to get away. With nothing to pack, he simply left his room and started walking down the road. First, he headed back to the Amtrak station and grabbed a cab there. Giving the cabbie his last hundred dollars, he muttered an address, half collapsing back in his seat. The trip took about twenty minutes, but upon his arrival, there was nothing around except an abandoned gas station, demolished buildings, and a string of empty lots. The cabbie confirmed that this is where Mac wanted to be. Mac told the cab driver to keep the change. After the cab left, Mac worked his way through a series of half-torn-up fences, and until he reached the back of the gas station, where he started to kick at the loose gravel around him. Mac had always been a planner, always looking ahead and trying to think of every contingency. For instance, he'd always known that his work for Donatello wouldn't last forever. He also knew that if there was ever a falling out between them, he wouldn't have much time. Therefore, over several years, he'd managed to build up a substantial stash of cash, IDs, and weapons, just in case he ever needed to disappear. It had been easy. Some of the people he'd eliminated had offered him money to let them go. Mac had, of course, taken their money before killing them. But he'd never told Donatello. Mac had nearly a half a million dollars set aside and called it his getaway bag. Now all I have to do is find the blasted access panel where they used to refill the station's fuel tanks. Then I'll need to find something to use as a pry bar to get it open. Digging in the gravel with his fingers, he finally located the panel and looked around for something to pry it open with. It was then that he noticed a man in a long trench coat standing about ten yards away from him. The man held a weapon of some sort and said, Ah, I was told to expect you here but I've been waiting more than a day and didn't know when you'd arrive. Mac knew he couldn't do much to confront the stranger while on his knees, so he grabbed some loose gravel in each hand and started to rise. I suppose you want me to stand up, turn around and place my hands behind my back, said Mac. No, 
replied the stranger. I'm quite familiar with your fighting prowess. You'll do fine right where you are. Before Mac could even rise to one knee, the man fired his taser and the darkness claimed him. Waking up on an examination table in a room with medical equipment in it, Mac surveyed his surroundings. The first thing that he noted was that there was only one exit door. However, there was also a window and a large mirror on one wall. Mac recognized it as a one-way mirror. This is an observation room. There are probably people behind that mirror, watching me. There was only a single person in the room, a tall man with dark-rimmed glasses and a tightly trimmed beard. Wearing a white lab coat, he stood on the opposite side of the room and watched silently. Mac sat up weakly. Ah, <laughs> we meet again, said the man. I don't remember ever meeting you, replied Mac. And that is the precise point that I wanted to make, said the man. I'd expect that you're a bit confused. Tell me, what's the last thing you remember before your accident? I was at a meeting. Ah, yes, the January 15th meeting with Donatello. Those are always the first memories that come back. What do you mean? I mean, this isn't the first time we've met. Tell me, how much time do you think has passed since that meeting? Mac shrugged. Three months, he replied. Hmm. Not even close. It's been seven years. What? said Mac. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Tell you what, why don't you go over to the sink and remove your head bandages as I tell you a story? Please note that it's what you don't remember that's important. As Mac unwrapped the bandages around his head, the man continued. After that meeting, Donatello cut you loose. In fact, he even tipped off the police regarding your whereabouts, in return for a reduced sentence for one of his capos, who was in police custody. But that pissed you off. So you turned yourself in, and then you turned on Donatello, promising to cooperate in return for immunity. I must say, you were most helpful. The information you provided put 80% of the Donatello organization behind bars for life. Of course, the ones that remained put a contract out for you, so in addition to immunity, you had to negotiate for entry into our new witness protection program. And that worked out fine, for a while, at least until you started to suffer from memory leaks. From what? Memory leaks. Don't worry, I'll explain. But first, look in the mirror and tell me who you see. Mac did so, and his jaw dropped. Suddenly, it all fit together. It all made sense. The man in the mirror was him. But it wasn't him. The man in his reflection was older. He had white hair, and his ears stuck out a bit. Fumbling for the wallet in his rear pocket, he pulled out the driver's license belonging to Chris Bennett, and his eyes flicked from the license to the mirror and back several times. <laughs> That's right. You are Chris Bennett. You've been in the WPP for seven years now, and you have a new life, with a new job, a loving wife, and two adorable children. With a little plastic surgery, you even got a new face. You're quite happy and have been completely forgotten by those who were once hunting for you. At least, you were forgotten until you went to Artie's, but don't worry about that. He's already being fixed. I see that you're surprised. 
Well, you should be. While you thought you were suffering from amnesia, you've really been suffering from the opposite. You haven't forgotten your memories. You've been slowly regaining them. <laughs> it's like this. The WPP has changed over the years. It's improved. In addition to providing our clients with a new place to live, a new identity, and a new job, we also give them new memories. You what? That's right. We erase the old ones and give you new ones. But why? Because, historically, only about 50% of the people placed in witness protection stay there. They don't like their new lives and run away. Some contact old friends and give their locations away. Many return to their old criminal activities. A few even try to make amends and go back to their old lives. Most of those who do, die. We find that erasing old memories and replacing them works so much better. People don't go back. They stay where they're supposed to. And you did that to me? Yes, but we've had a problem with you. What's that? You have a remarkably resilient mind. The memories we suppress keep resurfacing. It's quite perplexing. It's never happened before, but with you, it's happened more than once. Of course, the last one was when you stopped taking your medications. Those pills you threw away weren't to prevent migraines. They prevent memory leaks, the return of your suppressed memories. Last time, however, your memories returned as intense nightmares and we had to give you supplemental memory treatments. We thought they'd be sufficient, but unfortunately, it doesn't look like they lasted. What if I don't want this? asked Mac. What if I don't want to be in witness protection anymore? It doesn't matter what you want, said the doctor grimly. You aren't the only one who has paid for our services, and our services are very expensive. I can pay you, said Mac anxiously. I have a lot of money. Just let me go and I can make you rich. Ah, your getaway bag. I'm sorry, but it isn't there. You traded that in to law enforcement to cement your immunity, and it was used as a down payment for your memory treatments. I know about that, of course. How do you think I knew that you'd return there when enough of your memories had returned? Max swore under his breath and took a step toward the doctor, but he stumbled. He took another step and fell to his knees. What's happening? he asked. Oh, that means the muscle relaxer that I gave you while you were unconscious has started to take effect. The doctor gestured toward the mirror and, moments later, two muscular orderlies entered the room and approached Mac. As they grabbed him by the arms, Mac struggled, but found himself too weak to resist. Placing him on the examination table, they tied him down with restraining straps. I didn't know anyone could do such things, said Mac. Well, you probably know a little about us. You've undoubtedly heard about medical breakthroughs used to treat soldiers returning from war. Special procedures that deal with PTSD. Treatments that erase painful memories and replace them with pleasant ones. That's what most people think we do here at the Memory Institute. But we do much more. Like witness protection? Yes, that and other things. But we keep most of those other things secret. We service the needs of the military and law enforcement. We have regular contracts with several governments. Of course, none of them know about the others. Everyone thinks they are getting special treatment and special pricing. Oh, we also do work for very rich and powerful people. People who have employees that need to be adjusted. 
or people who want new lives. Then there are some who want to hide from their old ones. You'd be quite surprised to know how diverse the clientele is that we serve. Why, we can even transfer memories and skills from one person to another. Few people even suspect such things. Transfer? said Mac. Like the ability to play piano? Ah, yes. Many of the memories we implant are borrowed from donors. That's just one of the skills you gained in your new life. Mac found it difficult to keep his eyes open. But I don't want this, he said, repeating himself. Yes, I know. That's what you say every time. Will it hurt? Hmm. Normally I tell you no, but this time I'll be honest with you. Yes, it will hurt. Memory redaction is a very expensive, very lengthy, and very unpleasant experience. It'll hurt. A lot. But fortunately, after it's all done, you won't remember any of it. Mac tried to say something, but he could only mumble. That's all for now, said the doctor. Until we meet again, Mr. Bennett, I wish you pleasant dreams. Thank you for listening. We love our listeners, fans, and patrons here at Untold Tales, and we hope you love the stories that we're bringing to you month after month on the first of each month. Please consider leaving us a review on Podchaser. Once again, thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day.